Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We finally got some rain in Northeast Ohio. Should be good for the farmers. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Laura Johnston, Layla Tassi, and Lisa Garvin. Lots to go into. Let's get to it. Chief politics writer Andrew Tobias did the deep dive on what Ohio would look like today if the rules proposed in Democracy Killing Issue 1 had been in place already. Lisa, what would the landscape be? We'd have a lot of amendments that would never have made it to our Constitution if this this issue passes. So since 1914, there have been 228 proposed constitutional amendments on the ballot in Ohio. 157 of them were from the legislature. 106 of those passed. That's a 68% passage rate. But 42 of these amendments got less than 60% of the vote. So that drops the passage rate to 41%. 71 of these were citizen proposed, 19 of them passed, that's a 26% rate, but seven of them got less than 60%, so that drops the passage rate to only 10%. There have been five amendments since 2000 of 20 that we've had since then that would not have met the 60% threshold. Chief among them was 2006, the $6.85 minimum wage, that passed with 57%. 2009, casino gambling passed with 53%. These were both citizen-initiated and legislature-initiated amendments. The 2000 creation of the Clean Ohio Fund by selling environmental conservation bonds, which meant they had to borrow money, that passed with 57%. And in its time, it cleaned up 400 toxic sites, preserved 26,000 acres of natural areas, 39,000 acres of family farms, and 216 miles of trail were built. In 2005, it created the Third Frontier Economic Development Program that passed with 54%. They were using recent institutions to attract private venture capital for startups. $2.1 billion total has been you know, raised from sale of bonds, but the state has to pay those back. In 2015, Uh, We banned business interests from using the amendment process to create a monopoly. That passed, that barely squeaked by at 51%. But that was in response to the 2009 casino vote and a failed 2015 vote to legalize recreational marijuana. And those those who are supporting State Issue 1 are pointing to the casino gambling, you know, know, uh, constitutional amendment that uh, says, hey, these are outside interests coming in and, you know, uh, changing Ohio's constitution. But it wasn't an outside interest. Dan Gilbert was a leader of that. He's the owner of the Cavs. He's the definition of a of a Cleveland interest. What's interesting about the the casino gambling is the voters wanted it. People in Ohio largely favored it. And the legislature wouldn't do what they should do as a representative government and pass something. And the constitutional amendment change was the only way to get it done. These guys want to clamp that down. 
the, the what you just described completely flies in the face of the fiction that Frank LaRose is peddling, the Secretary of State of Ohio, that this is about outside interests coming in. It is outside interests that are trying to stop Ohioans from being able to change their constitution. The money that's fueling this comes from out of state. I do have to say, we, we've produced a lot of content about this and people are, are grateful, but I'm hearing from more and more people that are saying, I, I didn't know about this until I saw X and I have 75 people in my email chain. I'm making sure everybody knows about this. I'm getting the sense of this very serious underground, under the, under the atmosphere movement of people girding up to get this blocked. And I don't think the pro people quite understand what's going on here. There are a whole lot of people that have been energized by this. The columns that I write about it go to a couple hundred thousand people and they're circulating those and they're circulating Andrew's story. Um, and, and on the other side is Frank LaRose saying we have to protect the constitution, which is just total BS. There's, <laughs> he's trying to block the voters from changing their constitution. And it's really what autocrats do when they get into leadership mm -hmm. positions. Well, they take $1.1 million from an Indiana billionaire to support state issue one. It's just, it's the, the hypocrisy is, is amazing. Yeah, but I, I think people are getting it. I mean, you, I, I mean, I've heard from so many people that said, you know, thanks for all you're doing. I'm spreading the word. And so on this underground movement, the word is getting out. And the best that Frank LaRose and Matt Huffman have is we want to protect the Constitution from outside interests. It's just poppycock. Nobody's buying it. Plus, they said it for August when they had outlawed August elections because they have traditionally low turnouts. It's you're right. It's hypocrisy magnified. Great piece by Andrew really lays out how things would be different today if this had been in place. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Statehouse reporter Jake Zuckerman poured over uncountable documents in the Larry Householder trial for information that illustrates how corruption begins and takes place. The story has clear warnings for the present and future. Laura, how so? This is a really deep kind of jaw-dropping story that goes into nonprofits that are 501c4s like Generation Now, which is the one the householder used to funnel money to himself, basically. You know, he's been convicted of corruption. But this isn't, it was not just householder. Like, this is pretty common in Ohio. And that's the, the mind-boggling part of the story, that this type of nonprofit can receive unlimited sums of money without ever publicly disclosing the source. And you can't even know who has them. We don't know in the state of Ohio who has them. And they can allegedly operate under these thumbs of political power. And so they provide a legal mechanism for corporations or rich individuals to give as much money as they want to influence the political pro process. So in charging documents in the householder trial, prosecutors compare these nonprofits to a paper bag stuffed with cash. I mean, think about that. They're totally legal. You can't prove who has them. You can't prove who controls them, but they get the influence across. Yeah, I, it, it is an eye opener. And it really does show you that our elected leaders are pretty much bought and paid for. Um, you saw that in the meeting that Andrew Tobias caught where Matt Huffman summoned all the lobbyists to a, a meeting to explain what the strategy would be on issue one and how they should expect the call because they're expected to mm -hmm. pay for that. You know, it's like, hey, we take care of you when you come in for all your legislation, like drilling in state parks. 
now it's time to pay up. I mean, that is such a horrible message that, that everybody's just bought and paid for. The, the voters and the basic citizenry don't count in this equation whatsoever. This is business interests buying the legislature and doing it in secret. I should point out, too, the statewide Chamber of Commerce supports issue one. So they don't support the voters. They don't support the power of the citizenry. They support creating this basic dictatorship in Columbus. Let's think about that because the Ohio Chamber of Commerce represents businesses and businesses don't want a minimum wage law. And that's one of the the things that's possibly going to would go to a referendum to vote on. Right. They're only out for themselves. I've said this a zillion times on this podcast. Right. That they're out for their party and to stay election, stay elected for the political power. They are not out for the people. And so Jake went through, you, you said uncountable. I think you're completely right. We're talking about transcripts from the trial. He listened to hours and hours of testimony and combed through all of these documents. Everything in Jake's story is backed up by evidence in this trial. And he got it uh, delivered to him basically weeks after it because they would flash this up on the screen and then it would disappear. So he got all the evidence that came out in the trial. And part of this is lobbyist Neil Clark, who died of suicide. And he was the subject of wiretap phone calls and recordings from FBI agents. And that's where a lot of this comes from. Clark is boasting about how you use them. He said they're secret. They allow for public officials to put a proxy like him in charge to comply with the laws, but that he always advises clients to deliver their checks in person. So someone like Householder knows exactly where the money is coming from. (laughs) There is no secret there. There's just a secret from the rest of us who can't know where this money is coming from. And like you said in, in, in your question, why is this, this could be a problem in the future? These are still legal. So Householder went down, right? He's convicted. He's going to be sentenced this month. There are still a whole lot of people that haven't been even charged in this case. Um, the, it's funny that Jake points out. So Householder has been convicted of giving a, or accepting a bribe, but no one's been convicted of giving the bribe. Yeah, I know. And it can it's- still keep happening. It's taken the Justice Department way too long to bring to justice the people that funded that operation. Hopefully after his sentencing, after Householder is on his way to prison, we will see some developments. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We partnered with Baldwin Wallace University and Braver Angels Ohio on a survey of Northeast Ohio when it comes to civil discourse and our ability to talk with each other. Things have deteriorated in the Donald Trump and post-Donald Trump eras. We rolled out our first story over the weekend. Layla, what did we show? This story by Lucas DiPrilli will be the first in a series that he and our Washington correspondent, Sabrina Eaton, will be collaborating on. We're calling this the Civil Discourse Initiative. Together, they're going to be dissecting and exploring both the results of the Baldwin Wallace Braver Angel survey that you mentioned and and also the strategies that those groups have developed that have been proven to help people of all stripes and political leanings find common ground with without abandoning their beliefs or avoiding divisive topics altogether. This this project is is aiming to serve as a roadmap to find our way back to a place where civil discourse is possible. And and ultimately, so is compromise on public policy that matters to all of us. So in this weekend's introductory installment, Lucas tells us that according to those survey results, nearly a quarter of Northeast Ohioans said that they have had such a severe political disagreement with someone in their life that it led to broken personal relationships and that they, they no longer speak with that person as a result. The group mostly 
uh, most likely to say that a political disagreement has broken a relationship was between the ages of 18 and 49, and those least likely to say that were over 50. The survey also found Northeast Ohioans overwhelmingly believe politics is becoming less civil and that it's to our detriment, which is perhaps unsurprising given that nearly two-thirds of respondents said that they judge other people based on their political beliefs. Beverly Horseman from Braver Angels, Ohio, told Lucas that this is all a function of the increasing partisan rancor over the past 40 years. We explore the roots of that in, in future installments of the, our special project in stories that will look at the role of partisan media and social media and also the way our voting system is set up, how those factors contribute to the lack of civility in Ohio. But suffice it to say that lately, no one is happy with the direction of our country and everyone blames, you know, quote, the other side. That's what we've been programmed to do for the past several decades. This was an interesting weekend to roll that out because of the federal indictment of the former president Indeed. and all of the false equivalencies that followed that. My email lit up this weekend. Mr. Quinn, why aren't you writing about the Hillary Clinton emails? <laughs> Mr. Quinn, why are you writing about Burrismus? It's like, hey, the former president was indicted in federal court with very specific descriptions of what he did. That's what the case is about. But it, but we just had automatic polarity. I mean, I'm fed by Fox News and all the lunatics, but it was fascinating how polarized this weekend was at the very time we have Lucas writing a story about how people feel they can't talk to each other. I know. You know, I mean, some survey responses, I think, give us a little hope. There were just under half of, of respondents said political disagreements have strained relationships, but that those relationships have still remained strong and Two in five people said political disagreements have made their personal relationships stronger because both people better understand each other when they've gone through those sorts of disagreements. So it seems that the key to, to all of this is learning to communicate in ways that don't deepen the division. That's what the civil discourse initiative is going to be about. Yeah. And you mentioned we're going to be looking at election systems. It's pretty yeah. clear that the party primary system is heightening polarization in a big way. And there are jurisdictions, including a local one, that are experimenting with different systems that would get rid of that so that we start to get more reasonable candidates again. Um, right. Those will be good stories when we run those Right. As well. Because the way our, our experts have explained that par the primary system is that the people who are most likely to come out to vote in primaries are on the farthest fringe of of any party. And so we're left with, you know, in the general election, the fringiest of the candidates. Well, and for all of us who are independents, we have no say in who appears on the November ballot. Right. So we're stuck with these fringe candidates. And if, exactly. you, if you had the independents help select who gets to the ballot, you'd have m much more middle of the road candidates. And mm -hmm. I think that would help, you know, you wouldn't have Jim Jordan on the Sunday morning talk shows saying the ridiculous stuff he was saying about the Donald Trump indictment. You might have more reasonable people like Bill Barr saying, hey, these details are pretty damning and, you know, this could be very bad, which is the accurate description of that indictment. Although Bill Barr is reasonable only when it suits him. Just want to say yeah, that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. He did some dopey stuff as attorney general. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What are some health experts who research 
COVID. Why are some health experts who research COVID quite interested in finding one mystery Ohioan based on what has been found in a couple of sewage treatment plants? Lisa, this is a fascinating story. It really is. It's like, you know, like a detective, you know, trying to find somebody. So Mark Johnson is a professor of microbiology and immunology at the University of Missouri School of Medicine. He was going through a wastewater database of COVID samples, and he found large amounts of a new COVID strain coming from one person in Ohio. They found it in two different locations, one in Columbus, the other in Washington Courthouse, which is a little town 40 miles southwest of Columbus. And so they think it's probably a commuter between these two areas. They say these samples are probably not contagious, but they think it might be a form of long COVID. So Johnson tweeted in April, he says, hey, we're looking for this person. They were probably infected about two years ago. They're shedding lots of viral material. And he says that they may have a COVID-related gastrointestinal infection, but think it's probably only, you know, IBD or diarrhea. So they narrowed the list to 1,600 possible people with help from his followers and also U.S. Census data. 900 people make a daily commute from Fayette County, where, you know, Washington Courthouse is, to Franklin County. 700 people commute the other way. So so Johnson says he really wants to let this person know. He says, hopefully, if they get the word out, they can find out who this person is so they know what they have, because he says there's no way they could figure out that this is COVID related. Yeah, it's, it, because somebody's probably feeling pretty poorly with no idea why. And if they can at least get to them, they could figure it out. They'd also, they don't think it's contagious, but it would be good to know that for sure. Uh, but a whole new strain of COVID, one person in Ohio, and they've detected it through the sewage. That's a I, fascinating I had so many tale. questions when I read this. How do they know it's just one person? I mean, if it's a big enough volume of sewage to register in tests... What makes them think There's that? There's got to be DNA markers in the way. Well, that's what I want to yeah. know. Mm. Also, what makes them think it's a two-year-old infection? Like, where did that come from? And why do they think long COVID? And I mean, I, 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 Gretchen, if you're listening, <laughs> do us a favor and do a deep dive on this. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a cool story. I hope they find him. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What's the latest chapter in the long-running soap opera that is Lord Town Motors? Laura, will this ever be a viable concern? I don't think so. I mean, would you ever buy a truck from Lordstown at this point? Like, no. Uh, so far, 56 endurance pickup trucks have been built. 18 have been delivered to customers. That's according to Lordstown. But they've got a problem with Foxconn. That's a Taiwanese manufacturer that agreed to buy a bunch of their shares. So Lordstown says Foxconn is actually balking on its agreement to buy these shares in this startup. And they're saying in a report for shareholders that that it's been acted in bad faith and caused irreparable harm. But here's the thing. Remember that stock split they had? I don't know, a couple weeks, a month ago. So they took like, they were trading below a dollar per share, which was a problem. So they had to split all their stock. And I think every one, every one for 15. So every 15 shares of Lordstown stock was combined into one share. So Foxconn is arguing it can buy 26.9 million shares for a dollar for each for a dollar seventy six. That was their original agreement, regardless of the stock split. So it'd be getting like fifteen times more than it originally agreed to, and that would mean acquiring about sixty three percent of the outstanding common stock for the same price it agreed to pay for ten percent. So now they're arguing over 
whether they said they would buy specific shares or total amounts of the company. Yeah, I, I, I just don't see Foxconn coming through and, and doing this. I think they've got too many questions about the viability of this company, and they're thinking they don't want to throw good money after bad. And they have the out. I mean, it sounds like they can say you didn't live up to the contract. Lordstown can squawk all at once, but Lordstown didn't live up to its part of the deal. I mean, would you invest in this company? <laughs> no, but I've said that since day one. I well, and the, the, yeah, no, it's... It sounds like a nice idea. I wish it was more successful. And hey, maybe they'll prove me wrong, but I I just don't see it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Okay, Layla, Cleveland is keeping the pressure up over the deplorable maintenance of railroad bridges. What have city leaders done now to get the railroads to live up to their civic responsibilities? Well, city leaders have identified 23 railroad bridges across Cleveland with critical structural problems, and they're demanding action from the rail operators and state and federal regulatory agencies. That includes the Public Utilities Commission of Ohio, the state's railroad oversight body, and the U.S. Department of Transportation. The city wants these agencies to conduct inspections and immediately order the railroad operators to repair 99 bridges in Cleveland, including those two dozen that were identified as having serious structural problems, and 76 others with non-critical problems. And then they're going to send a similar demand letters to the railroads directly. After the East Palestine disaster, the mayor's office of capital projects surveyed all the railroad bridges in the city to get a handle on on all of these problems, and they came up with this list. The worst bridges on their list have failing bearings and walls and deteriorated concrete on retaining walls and support columns. The city officials unveiled this list of bridges at a news conference that was actually at the foot of a bridge over Superior Avenue near East 39th Street. It's number 10 on their worst offenders list. Courtney Astolfi was out there during the press conference and said that the bridge's concrete supports showed visible crumbling. There was overgrown vegetation running along the length of it. And and as the officials were speaking, a pedestrian walked underneath this precarious bridge and later a train rumbled by overhead. I mean, it sounds like a disaster just waiting to happen. And I'm sure that's the case that they're all of their worst offender locations. Good for the city for pushing this. Let's see if they can get some action. If with anything else in the city, if you let the condition get this bad, the city has tools to compel you mm-hmm. as, a, as any kind of property owner. You remember the building in downtown where the uh, facade was falling off a, a few years back and the city got very aggressive in making the building owner fix that because bricks were falling off the building on onto the street. Could have hurt somebody. Why can't they get it done with the railroads? Is it that Congress has just right. passed so many laws giving the railroads an out that, that we're don't all know. powerless? Because clearly these regulatory agencies are the groups that can enforce. And and the city is as upset with the, with the agencies as they are with the railroads for failing to maintain the bridges. There, you know, Council President Blaine Griffin pointed to as an example, one Norfolk Southern Bridge on Cedar Avenue near Ashland Road that was ordered to make repairs nearly a decade ago by the federal government. They were ordered to complete the concrete encasement in 2015. Today, eight years later, it still hasn't been done. So whose failure is that? You know, we've heard a lot from Jay Vance and Sherrod Brown, our two senators, about railroads in the past year because of the East Palestine train wreck. You would think that they would get it together and build in some enforcement to finally make the railroads live up to their responsibilities. It's ridiculous that Cleveland City Council and 
and uh, the administration have to do it. Um, big list, though. I, I mean, I was when I studied that list, I'm thinking this is basically every railroad bridge in Cleveland. <laughs> right. There should be some heavy fines for every month that passes after you've been ordered to repair these things. Come on, <laughs> or, get it or together. Treat it, or treat it like a scofflaw with a ticket. Boot the trains, you know, put a big boot on the train. Don't let them go through <laughs> unless they fix the railroad. That's a good one. You're listening to Today in Ohio. State Senator Jerry Serino's Orwellian bill would clamp down hard on freedom of expression at Ohio colleges, making it difficult to attract students and faculty. But the Ohio Senate is not finished making life hard on colleges. Lisa, what's the latest? Ohio's Republican senators have inserted a bill in the draft budget that would force colleges to grant exemptions for vaccines based on religious convictions or reasons of conscience. Now, Colleges can still have vaccine mandates for enrollment, but the reasons for exemption are determined solely by the students. So you might as well not have a mandate at all. This is according to a Legislative Service Commission analysis. Now, this is not just COVID vaccines. This is all vaccines, hepatitis, polio, TB. You know, school policies differ across the state, but at Ohio State, students are required to have measles, TB and polio and a couple other vaccines to register for classes. They do not require COVID vaccinations any longer at OSU, but they do allow exemptions for, quote, religious, philosophical, and moral convictions. So, yeah, they're saying you can have your mandate, but anyone can opt out for basically any reason. And we're just running away from science at this point. The, the, the vaccinations have done so much to make the world a healthier place. And because we elect fringe loons to the legislature because of gerrymandering, we end up running away from science and, and going with ridiculous polarizing arguments. And it's not any better at K through 12. A series of inoculations are required for enrollment in K through 12, but Ohio is one of 15 states that allow non-medical exemptions. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. How much is Ohio getting in the huge national opioid settlement announced last week, Laura? It is getting $680 million from CVS, Walgreens, and two other drug makers. Well, so those are the pharmacies and then two drug makers, part of the $17.3 billion settlement. This is resolving thousands of lawsuits that are related to that role in the opioid addiction crisis. It still has to get final approval from the courts, but the companies could pay at the minute the money over the next 15 years, starting by the end of this year. So 55% of Ohio's share of the money, that's about $374 million, will be distributed by the One Ohio Recovery Foundation. That's going to local relief, recovery, and prevention efforts. They have to make that decision on what programs get it. About $204 million will go directly to local governments, and the remaining 15%, around $102 million, goes to the state. Well, and we will know how the decisions are being made because we did get a Supreme Court ruling saying that they have to operate in the public eye. Correct. But they're not going to start doing that for, I think they're just deciding a final decision in early 2024 about the funding request. So I'm sure that we'll be covering it as it goes along, but that money's not coming out immediately. Um, t drug maker Tiva is part of this and aller Allergan, Allergan. So Tiva agreed to stop all opioid marketing and insure systems are in place to prevent the drug misuse. Allergan's a subsidiary of uh, drug maker AbV. They pledged to stop selling opioids altogether for the next 10 years. So it's not just money. 
uh, although obviously this is a whole lot of money and we've talked a lot about these different settlements. So there's still different lawsuits going on, different local governments that have their own lawsuits, those could still be playing out. So this isn't every bit of the piece of the pie, but it it is a whole lot of money. The sad thing about this, and I hear from people about this all the time, is there's been such an overreaction that for people who are suffering genuine pain, they can't get the opioids anymore that relieves them of their pain. Uh, the, The doctors just don't want anything to do with it because they're afraid they could be charged or sued. And so there are people suffering today that that don't need to be because they can't get the drugs. That's really too bad. I mean, I get it, right? Nobody wants to be accused at this point of overprescribing, but there is a happy, I don't know about happy, there's a medium here. And the they pushed these for so long. And obviously the result was all of this addiction and deaths and and now they we've got to figure out. I mean, the money can't take bring people back or necessarily help people recover. I, I mean, that's the goal. But a lot of lives have been ruined. Okay, you're listening to today in Ohio. Let's end with something positive. Layla, what did the LeBron James Family Foundation celebrate last week? My gosh, my favorite athlete of all time, LeBron James, taking care of families in his hometown, man, in such a big way. The East Akron Neighborhood Development Corporation and the LeBron James Family Foundation on Thursday celebrated the opening of I Promise Housing. It's just a half mile away from the I Promise School in Akron. And this housing development, which was designed with I Promise families in mind, features 50 affordable long-term housing units with two, three, and four-bedroom layouts. It's got Wi-Fi, community rooms, fitness rooms, All the amenities you'd expect to find in any market rate apartment complex, but rent is super affordable for those who qualify. It's $345 to $850 a month, and there are still 30 units available. Not only that, the LeBron James Foundation has agreed to provide support services for the families who live in the building, including job and family services, medical and mental health care, educational and career advancement training, and financial literacy. This, uh, this was a $13 million project, and it was LeBron James's second venture in the housing market. His foundation's first foray in housing came with the opening of its I Promise Village by Graduate Hotels in 2019. And the I Promise Village offers short-term housing there and support for, for students and their families facing challenges such as homelessness, domestic violence, and other unforeseen events. So this is that long-term housing piece of, of that pie. And it continues his long-term commitment to his hometown. Amazing guy, continuing to do amazing things. That's it for the Monday episode of Today in Ohio. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, everybody who listens to this podcast.